Hello, hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Mitzi and this is Mitzi. Let's think about it. Today, we are thinking about food Americana. Let's be honest. When you think about food Americana, you're basically thinking about the good food that America has. And luckily for me, I have a special guest named David who has all of the great intelligence of food Americana. Uh, David, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, thank you. Uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm, uh, I've been a journalist for some 50 years. I was in network news forever. Uh, then I switched and created a show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, which some of you may remember. After that, I, uh, I spent 11 seasons with that show, moved on. Uh, most recently, I wrote a book called Food Americana about the fact that, A, we have an American cuisine, and B, I explored exactly how we got it and what it is. And basically, we took bits and pieces of the cuisines of other countries and cultures, generally as brought here by immigrants, although we also adopted the foodways of Native Americans, and we modified these dishes and we changed these dishes and we made them Americanized, but they're now part of a core cuisine that includes the American versions of Chinese food, Mexican food, Italian food, uh, pizza most specifically, uh, and on and on. And um it was a lovely uh, dining experience to uh, to come up with the information. No, I think that would be interesting to have gone through. Would you say, because I live in the East Coast and here in the Midwest, and I've also lived in the South, and I feel that just in those three regions, their cooking styles are very different. You know, the way that they they cook food, even in the South, different even parts of the South, you know, once mm -hmm. you cross that Mississippi line, the, the East Coast, the East of that and the West of that, two different styles of cooking as well when it comes to the South. So I just feel that, you know, regions most definitely has an impact on the style that changes something so simple like rice and beans or chicken or, or, or just cornbread alone is something so different mm -hmm. in so many different regions. Cornbread, with or without sugar. With or without sugar, with or without corn, you know, that's a big debate for some people. <laughs> um, no, region, look, all cooking at its heart is regional. We talk in this country about Italian food. That's absurd. There's the food of Abdurasesi. There's the food of Calabria. There's the food of Venice. It's all regional based on what's available. In the United States, obviously, we um, cooking styles differed regionally based to a great extent on what was available and what was available to whom and especially what was available to people in poverty because most of the truly creative dishes uh, in any region are the ones that were invented or modified by people of limited means trying in a very creative way to create acceptable sustenance. Um, you know, you, you look at soul food 
and so much of it is based on the bits and pieces of the animal that, pardon me, in the days of slavery were what the overseers, uh, the I hate to use this word, but the owners of the slaves made it possible for the enslaved people to eat. And it wasn't the good parts uh, of the animal. I mean, we spend a fortune on chicken wings now on Super Bowl Sunday, but that wasn't considered the prize part of the bird. Yeah, it really wasn't. You think of the breast to be the most um Price part of a bird versus the wings or the legs that barely have a lot of well, so, yeah, some place with meat on it, like a thigh, which tastes much better than a breast because it has fat, and oh. fat is flavor. And you know, we we went through. Look, I've battled my weight my whole life, so I'm intimately familiar with this. But when I was young, and suddenly the uh, the skinless chicken breast became available. Uh, an item which had seemingly no calories, but also seemingly no taste. Yeah. Um, most of the great recipes involving chicken, uh, in, especially European recipes, involve dark meat, which which has a much deeper flavor profile because it it has some uh, some fat. I mean, an interesting thing happened to me personally. I. Uh, I'm old enough and unfortunately not thin. I got diagnosed with uh, type 2 diabetes and had to change the way I'm eating. And my nutritionist said to me, we're not going to count calories. This is the stuff that you should eat. This is the stuff that as a diabetic you should not eat. Um, we're going to make a schedule for when you eat and just eat good food. And in doing that, for the first time, not counting calories, I've been losing a substantial amount of weight. Um, it's fascinating how we, as a culture, kind of put the kibosh on good basic food and in many cases replace that with processed crap and, you know, Snackwell's cookies that supposedly um, were fat free. Well, of course they were fat free, they were full of sugar, which turned to fat. Um, it, just eat good food. Uh, make good food. It, it's it's that simple. You think that's the reason why America has such a high drive-throughs and drive-ins and things like that? Just because? Well, which came first? The, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, the 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 drive-through, the fast food culture, was part of the boom boom fifties. After yeah. World War II, where white America, this did not apply to black America, where white America was suddenly feeling flush and wonderful, and you had the GI Bill to let white people go to college, um, and Eisenhower started building an interstate highway system. And people started moving to the suburbs and being in their cars, which they could now afford, um, hours a day. And the natural outgrowth of that was um, drive-through restaurants. And uh, look, we, we pride ourselves these days on being a go-go culture. So obviously, one hand on the wheel, one hand on the burger is a sign of getting things done. 
as opposed to France, where they get just as much done and take a good one hour lunch most days. Um, but A, this fast food drive through thing was seen as America on the cutting edge of the future. Uh, and B, uh, the combination of salt, sugar, and fat that fuels these dishes is medically or not at least emotionally addictive. So we've come to expect those flavors um, wrapped in wax paper. Yeah, that's true. But I feel that back then the food was more fresh, I guess you could say, just because what was accessible to them. And I well, it depend, now- depends when back then is. I mean, on the one hand, uh, if you were eating what was grown close to you, uh, yeah, it was fresher for the most part. But so-called technological advances over time modify you know there's all this talk today about genetically modified well they've been growing strains of produce for decades that 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 have been grown for a certain attribute for example tomatoes are grown to be round so that they can be transported in those containers. They have not been genetically engineered to taste good. Uh, I live in New Jersey. There is a brief period of the summer when we get Jersey tomatoes. They're the ugliest, most misshapen tomatoes on earth. They're also the best, unquestionably. Um, It's... it's, uh, What happened is we stopped needing to eat seasonally as our fascination with science and mechanized um, food production made it possible to have strawberries all year, even though they're really only good at a certain time of the year, made it possible um, to have all sorts of seasonal foods available all the time. But the result is, A, we've come to expect it, and B, the flavor profiles of those foods have been substantially watered down. Now, it's hard. We tried, my wife and I tried one winter. We said, Let, we're going to eat seasonally. We're just going to do what people used to do in the winter, which meant canning tomatoes when they were in season and then in the winter eating root vegetables based on what has happened to our desires about food uh i found it impossible but i tried yeah you tried so it became impossible just because you already felt the luxury of having whatever you wanted and yeah i wasn't i there's only there's only so many days you can eat a parsnip and soups and soups and yeah soups. a lot of soup <laughs> oh i could only imagine yeah i'm I'm not a soup person i i'm, I'm never- neither am i my wife is a soup person i look at that stuff you can drink and i think that ain't a meal yeah exactly i'm like this, this is, can be a nice addition i mean gazpacho is a great starter in the summer but uh, with the ex- oh, wait there's one exception really really good clam chowder where it isn't it doesn't taste like minestrone soup if it's red it doesn't taste like milk if it's white where it tastes of clams that's a good soup mm-hmm. yeah but always having something on the side like hot bread some crackers or some fruitons no those yeah, little I mean, oyster crackers you know I, mean? I need to have yeah or oyster crackers thank you i like i need a crunch with my soup like i love those 
like clam chowder and broccoli and cheddar and chicken and rice like oh those are so great but i need i need something else you know i need some crunch need a little crunch on the side yeah mm-hmm, i need that crunch. well that's why croutons are so great on french onion soup I know what I have not tried French onion soup because when I was what? A CNA, I always had to serve it to my patients and it always had a weird smell. Like it tasted, it smelled bland. Like it smelled like just onions. But when I tasted it, it just it didn't taste like anything. So I was just like, yeah, I'm okay. So yeah, I well, never you, tried. You were, them, uh, you were serving the medical industry soup. Um, <laughs> That's true. Where it's go to a good brasserie or or, or or any French restaurant and ask for French onion soup. You'll get a better experience. Okay. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Next time I'm going to order the French onion soup if I feel the environment is good. So I guess leading up to that, how do you necessarily know when you're entering into a good restaurant or just a place with that they serve food how do you know if the food's going to be good by the smell well, or it, by how uh, on the one hand it depends where you live if you live in a food intensive environment such as new york new orleans san francisco paris rome you stand a much better chance walking into a restaurant and being surprised by a lovely experience than, pardon me, um, you would necessarily get in Indianapolis. Correct. Um, pardon me, my allergies just hit oh. me. Oh, you are perfectly fine. I had allergies just a couple of months ago, and man, Ooh, they were deadly. That was bad. Yeah. Um, allergies other- have been deadly. Other than that, it's so hard to tell. I mean, uh, I'm not a big devotee of things like Yelp because in an angry America, that is often an opportunity to hurt a restaurant owner as opposed to share real expressions. Um, I, when we were looking to book places for diners, one of the places we always started was... um, local magazines you know the city magazine the state magazine the the newspaper and and uh read what their food writers are saying and that'll give you an idea if i'm going to a new city i will immediately pull up the food columns uh that have been written there over the last couple of months to get an idea of what at least some professionals think about various items number two i gotta tell you this is going to sound so basic and so stupid but um you get an awful lot of good food recommendations from uber and taxi drivers because i'm much more interested in the places people really eat Mm -hmm. than in shishi places i'm told to eat we went to charleston not that long ago and had an absolutely incredible meal at Husk, which is a very well-known restaurant, uh, you know, considered one of the best in the country. It was a fantastic meal, but so was the one at the Oyster Shack that a local directed me to that was kind of at the end of a bridge to nowhere. Um, and the food was extraordinary. I, I really, really trust knowledgeable locals to tell me where to eat. 
Yeah, I think that is a, a great key point because sometimes the locals, they they know those gems or they know the people who started those small come up ones. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes those little small places are a lot better than those mainstream like fast food stores that are there. That is very, very true. I guess because when I, when people from outside of America, when they think, when they've always asked me since I'm American, do we just eat steak and potatoes all the time? And it's like food, uh, food, American food is more than steak and potatoes because it's like you said earlier, we've Americanized almost every culture at this point. And I guess mm-hmm. um, leading to my question is which food outside of America has become very popular in your eyes? Food from elsewhere? Yeah, well, food yeah. from outside. Yeah, what would be- I, I now believe sushi is an American food. Oh, okay. It yes. is it is produced in this country in a way that is unique. Most of what people here prefer among sushi is nothing you'd see in Japan. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's fine. The big sushi rolls are, are generally not what is eaten in japan sushi rolls with spicy mayonnaise are definitely not what's eaten in japan but that's fine we have developed an american sushi style of our own i mean oklahoma in my book i i profiled a gas station sushi bar where they they make legit sushi of any type but the most popular in this gas station across from an air base in Oklahoma, the most popular is deep fried sushi rolls. They make an entire roll and then they toss it in the deep fryer. And this is the state that lives on chicken fried steak. So what could be better than chicken fried sushi? Um, Sushi's an American dish now. Um, Chinese food modified to our tastes is American. Pizza is American. Um, Lobster, one of the few dishes that's indigenous. Um, But again, we took it from another culture. We, We took it from the Native Americans who taught the English settlers, you can eat these things, otherwise you're going to starve, and taught them how to cook shellfish. Uh, in a manner that is reminiscent of the um, uh, clam bakes you you can still enjoy in New England today. I mean, you throw the lobster in with some seaweed on top of some coals, and you got dinner. Back then, the settlers were horrified by the concept of eating this thing, but uh, the initial... Um, Settlers uh, were not particularly good at raising food since they were basically upper middle class who had escaped England for a variety of reasons. Middle class, not necessarily upper middle class, but they weren't real into uh, doing the hard work of raising food and they nearly starved. Yeah, I've seen that in a documentary um, before. I, um the World History Channel has so many great documentaries on on back then when the settlers came in. And that was one thing that they actually had the natives show them how to cook and how to farm and how to build houses. And I was like, wow, it's amazing. It's amazing that what we don't 
we don't really know in school until we get out of school. And well, and so considering much. the genocide that followed, it's um, yeah, it's baffling. It's not a happy I story. I help you, and then I kill you guys off. Ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, it's ridiculous. But I guess it's time wrapping up the show before um, time runs up on us. What can be some lasting words that you can possibly leave our guest with? Eat good food. Make good food. The preponderance of things like um, food kits, where you get this box with pre-proportioned stuff, it takes longer than it takes to make real food. Um, Take a chicken. Put it in a pan. Salt, pepper, garlic, and a little bit of chicken stock around the base to keep it moist. Put it into a 500-degree oven. Take it out. You'll have dinner. It's that simple. And I I wish, you know, again, I mentioned earlier, um, just eating what's good as opposed to counting calories. Uh, that's that would be my mantra these days. Now, that doesn't mean it's got to be organic, naturally certified to come from Mars or whatever. There's an awful lot of uh, jargon that, that gets used around supposedly healthy food. Um, get as close to the source as you can and and cook simply but well. Oh, wow. That's nice. Simple words. You simply put it. I think that is that is easily said than done. I think people make cooking seem harder than what it has to. They overcomplicate it because mm-hmm. in reality, it's as simple as what you said. Sometimes you don't need 500 ingredients to make it taste good. Some, t- sometimes adding all those 500 ingredients makes it taste less salty and nasty and just like, ugh, you ruined the food. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I... I'm a late-in-life convert to the reverse seer. You familiar with that? I have no okay. idea. Here's, here's the reverse seer. Most people, most people cook steak by searing it uh-huh. on the outside and then leaving it in that pan to continue cooking, um, which means that the seared area gets bigger and bigger And the evenly cooked area that is at the temperature you want it to be is smaller and smaller. The reverse sear, you take a piece of meat, you cook it initially at a low temperature. I I use 275. When it reaches 130 or 135, you take it out, you quickly throw it in the hottest pan you can get to sear both sides. But what you now end up with when you look at it is almost none of that gray-brown layer around the outside. Because you cooked it at a low temperature, it is evenly cooked across the entire piece of meat. It's it's pink from side to side. Um, It's impossible to screw up. You can't screw it up. Trust me on this. I think that's really smart because... So I, for me, once I'm done frying chicken, I just put it in the oven on a low, low temperature just so it stays warm and it stays and sometimes even makes it even more crispier when it's when it's in the oven while I'm still frying the other chicken. And it's like it's kind of the concept, but not really. But you basically still cooking it a little bit, but slow and low. And then when you put it on, it 
Makes it just, just right. Oh, that's smart. I like it. Thank you so much, David. Thank you for being on my show. I love your perspective. I think I appreciate you sharing it with myself along with my audience. That's that's it. That's my show, you guys, ladies and gentlemen. If you guys want to know more, go check out mitzithinking.com and you find more great contacts as well as um, David here as well. So always keep thinking. Bye.